Hello, and thank you for joining us on this podcast. You will be listening in on a conversation between Brandon Poe and Ed Menlowitz about gearing up for tax season. You'll hear some great tips for developing smoother and more profitable tax seasons. Brandon Poe is the founder of Poe Group Advisors, a leading edge intermediary focusing exclusively on accounting practice sales, mergers, and acquisitions. Brandon is the author of Accountant's Flight Plan, Best Practices for Today's Firms, and On Your Own, How to Start Your Own CPA Firm. Ed Menlowitz has over 40 years of public accounting experience and is a partner with Witham, Smith & Brown in New Brunswick, New Jersey. He has written 16 books, including Managing Your Tax Season, Successful Tax Planning, and How to Review Tax Returns. Ed has also written hundreds of articles for business and professional journals. To learn more about Poe Group Advisors, please visit pogroupadvisors.com. To learn more about Ed Mendelowitz, please visit withem.com. Hello, today I'm talking with Ed Mendelowitz. Uh, he is a partner with Witham, Smith & Brown. Um, he, Ed is one of Accounting Today's 100 Most Influential People. He's also the author of 24 professional books, including a bestseller, Managing Your Tax Season. Um, his practice management techniques have been reported on in the Wall Street Journal, the Journal of Accountancy, and Accountancy Today, uh, as well as many other publications. Ed, thank you very much for being with us today. It's a pleasure, Brandon. Um, so today, you know, I, saw, I saw one of your articles uh, which is how I came, came to find your content. And you um, wrote a book called Managing Your Tax Season. And I wanted to thought that would be a timely topic for our audience. So I've got some questions just about the book. Uh, my first question is, why, why write a book about a subject that everybody knows about and deals with for a substantial part of their time? Well, actually, that, that's a good reason to write a book. Everybody spends a lot of time with tax season. I, I know of very few accountants that are really happy with every aspect of tax season. I'm one of them that is very happy. But uh, very few accountants are happy with all the aspects. Even if, they're very ha even if they're happy, there's parts they don't like. So what this book does is brings together all the, all the facets of tax season, puts it all together, it sort of integrates it, and it shows how you could have a better tax season, more profitable tax season, service your clients better, and have staff that really have a lot of fun, and you, how you can make more money. Yeah, well, that's the whole point, right? That's right. <laughs> uh, so... Who who do you think is the primary uh, reader of your book? Who's the who's the target reader? Well, actually, I I started out giving a speech managing a tax season 35 years ago, and I've given this speech over 60 times. And believe it or not, I used to give it twice a year uh, for for quite a few years for the New Jersey Society of CPAs, and the same people would come to both presentations each year, and I would tell them. Why, why do you come? Uh, it's the same. Yeah. And they would tell me that they get idea. Every time that they hear it, they get a different idea. And, and literally, um, they, they want to run their practices better, and they feel this is a good way of starting with tax season. So are you finding that it's smaller practitioners or larger firms? What, um, 
what sort of the typical reader or of your book or the typical person that would come to your speeches? Well, I, 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 I tell the readers they could write to me and I would send them stuff. And basically, almost everybody that responds, I would say from firms that are from sole practitioners up to about 30 or 40 people. Occasionally, someone from one of the really giant firms, you know, contacts me, you know, and because in a way, they run a mini taxis and even for their own book of business. You could be with one of the big four firms and you still got a responsibility for your own book of business. But my reader is, and, and my audience is the smaller practitioner. Okay. It's a way of supporting smaller practices. And, and I, I like to do it and my firm likes to do it. Right, and that's you know that's our typical audience too is probably the smaller smaller firms. Um, and one thing I hear from people more and more, and we see we see this in our business is like there's a we're sort of in the middle of our busy season. So after October fifteenth up until February, we're pretty busy selling practices. But um, one thing you write about is sort of a twelve month tax season. Um, do you see any big difference between, you know, the April 15th tax season and now the October 15th tax season? Actually, there's a big difference, but there is a 12-month tax season because because of extensions, things stretch out to October 15th. And then right after October 15th, you people, we start doing projections and year-end planning for our clients. Uh, and also we've got to start planning for the next tax season. So it really is a 12-month tax season, but there's a big difference between the April 15th tax season and the October 15th tax season. Uh, and the big difference is that for the April 15th tax season, we could have staff work late, work all hours of the night, and uh, not have a problem. And their families seem to understand it. They may not like every bit of it, but they understand it. You can't tell somebody that they have to work late in September or the beginning of October. And if you want to stretch out the work into the summer, it's very hard to tell somebody you've got to work late in August. So it, the difference is that there's a resistance uh, to, to getting the unlimited amount of time that we seem to get during tax season. So, so to me, that's the difference. The other thing is the October 15th tax season, everything seems to be a rush. The April 15th is a rush because we have the deadline, but it's, a, it's an orderly rush. People bring in their information, and we have time to get the work done. On the October 15th tax season, we may not get K, we were getting K-1s a couple of days before October 15th. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. And, uh, again, the hours that you, you're forced to work uh, – Normally, you don't work the extra hours, but you work the you work the extra hours on tax returns, but you take it away from regular work. In uh, the the a April fifteenth tax season, you don't really take that much away from the regular work. It's more orderly, believe it or not. Yeah. So so, what do you do to counter that? What is this, what are some of the strategies or solutions you found to help with that, making that October fifteenth deadline less less of a problem? Well, part of it is to schedule the work that you can do. Uh, I, I would say that we have ex the extensions we have on April 15th don't get touched until June. 
because we're, we're recovering and we got to catch up on regular work. I would say most of the work that gets done at the last minute in October can be scheduled in the summer, in Ju- June, July, August, uh, and even the beginning of September. So, so you've, it's filming work, but you can schedule it, get as much done as possible, and if you're waiting for K-1s, get everything done except for, for the information that go from the K-1. But it's a question of scheduling, and I, I talk to accountants all over the country, and we just don't do it right. We don't yeah. schedule it. We don't feel a sense of urgency, and it's the summer. People really take off a lot. If you go on vacation, I think at any given week you got 15 to 20 percent of your staff is on vacation during the summer. So while summer might seem it's not, it's not as busy, it is because we, we're shorthanded. But I would schedule the work as much as possible during the summer. The other right. thing I try to do is I try to get everything done before April 15th that we can get done. There's two types of extensions. There's the extension that uh, is, is dictated because the client doesn't give us the information or the client doesn't have the information. And then it's the work that we feel we can't get to or, or returns are too complicated and we don't want to rush it. I would kill to get every return done by April 15th. Right. Uh, Get it done because if you don't get it done by April 15th, you're going to have that rush in October. Right. Now, one thing you mentioned in the book or um, or you talk about is outsourcing. So what do you think about outsourcing return preparation? Well, if you can get it done by outsourcing, I would I would recommend it. However... There are people who tell me they will never outsource a return no matter what, and then they have their staff work at home because part of tax season. Well, when the staff works at home, you've outsourced it to your staff who just happen to be working at home. Outsourcing means it's not done in your office. Um, So there is outsourcing. Now, if you want to hire a professional organization or a firm to do the returns, I, I have been, you know, me and my partners, I've been very successful outsourcing returns um, to in bulk to other organizations that just do tax returns. Um, it, it's a crunch. We got a lot of work to do. You you could outsource a lot of the detail. Also, part of outsourcing is using these smart scanners. People don't look at uh, outsourcing in the real sense of the way. Outsourcing would be any work that could be done. Uh, that's not done by the people sitting in your office. If you have smart scanners, if you could scan the the 1099s, W-2s, and a lot of the the simple uh, K-1s, that that populates the tax software. That's a form of outsourcing. Uh, Also, you could hire, um, there's a lot of people who are very competent, like maybe a lot of stay-at-home moms who want to get out of the house during tax season, and you can hire them on a part-time basis. They're not going to give you all the hours that you might want, but they could be very effective doing tax returns partially in your office and partially at home. We're paperless now. Everybody's paperless. There's no reason why you can't have flexible time and have people on a part-time basis that are not regularly employed by you doing tax returns during tax season. Yeah. yeah. And I've seen a couple of firms um, successfully let students do really simple returns 
and that's a really low-cost way to get tax return help. And you've got to have a training program in place, and you've got to have enough volume for that to make sense. But that's another option that, that I've seen a couple of firms do, and it's, it's very profitable. Well, um, our firm hires interns during tax season. My office alone, we hire about five or six interns during tax season. We have a very good, excellent training program, and, and we could get people, we could get students doing 80 to 85 percent of the tax return, and that relieves a tremendous amount of pressure. Also, I, I don't care what, who's listening to this or, or what size firm they are, in most of the large firms, it's lower-level staff that do the tax returns. You don't have people with eight, nine years' experience doing tax returns. You have people with one and two years' experience doing tax returns. Um, it's reviewed by higher-level people, but you are having lower-level people do the tax returns because most of the work can be done by these right. people. Again, training is, is a major factor. I, I look at training as an investment, and um, uh, it has to be done, and I think that the training has to be done, a good part of it has to be in-house based on the systems that the firm follows. Right. I mean, everybody is going to know what, what the uh, tax rules are and what the deductions are, uh, but the, the procedures, the way returns get done, the way, the way it's approached, the way people start, uh, the way they follow up with, with clients, uh, the training should be on those kind of things. Yeah. Do you, do you know anybody that's published a really good, like, intern or student training program? Do you know if any publications that are out there that exist for that? No. Uh, actually, I don't know if that's a good idea, but... Uh, the firms that do the training are not going to buy it, and the firms that don't do the training don't have a clue, and they, they <laughs> keep complaining about the quality, and they don't do anything. There are, you know, my book, Managing Tax Season, I don't want to give a plug, but it's an excellent book. I, I have another book called How to Review Tax Returns, which is for reviewers because there's nothing except for my book on how to review tax return. But the training... The, the basic training for doing a tax return, uh, we, we're very successful doing it in-house. We're a pretty big firm. We have many different offices. And um, each, in each office, we've developed their, their own training method, and it works. And when I had my own firm, I merged in 11 years ago with a larger firm. But when I had my own firm, we would hire people uh, beginning of tax season or even in the beginning of February and by the beginning of April, they were working on some of the most complicated returns that we had. It's all in the training. You need a discipline. You need a protocol. You need a way of doing it. And you need a, a mindset that you're not going to shortcut any of the training. Yeah, I think there's a, a real demand for that type of training. If you develop some kind of program that's tried and true, I, I, bet, people would, uh, I bet people would benefit from that. Um, now, some people call you the checklist man. What, uh, <laughs> why do you feel checklists are so important? First of all, uh, I, I love checklists. I have checklists for everything. If I go on a trip, I have a checklist when I pack. And if I go on the trip and I need a tuxedo, my tuxedo, I have a checklist of what I have to pack for the uh, tuxedo. Um, 
in, in any kind of business, and we're, we're in the accounting business, uh, the way you make money is by leveraging the, the talent and the ability of the higher-level people and getting lower-level people and entry-level people to do the work and to follow the systems and procedures. The only way you could have effective systems and procedures that people could follow is to have checklists. So I think that there should be checklists for anything that's repetitive in, in an office. Um, I will tell you, I'll make an offer. If anybody, I'll send to you, I, I give out, every year I publish uh, tax season checklists. It's about 35 checklists. I update them every January. And I offer them for free. So I could send them to you, Brandon, uh, in January, and you could send it to your readers if you want for free. Yeah, we'll we'll put a link. At, is there a link like they could just link to it? And, and no, but if people email me, I'll send it to them. Okay. Uh, but they can email me and uh, don't do it before January. But if they email, I'll have it ready usually about the third week in January. I update them all. There's about thirty, at least thirty-five checklists, and then some other goodies. And okay. uh, uh-huh. everything that I post and publish, I've done. I've done. So if if I've done it more than once, if I if I'm doing something for a third time, I have a check. I make up a checklist at that time. Yeah, make, make if I do it once, I'm not going to do a checklist. Yeah. But second time maybe. But for the third time, I'm absolutely going to have a checklist. Because why repeat? Why keep learning something that you know? Right. No, I agree. Um, and one thing, too, that you mentioned in your book is you advocate that reviewers eliminate checking all the input and stick to issues and big-picture review. So with that, how, how can that be effective if the input of the client's data is not checked for accuracy? Well, I, I've done surveys, and when I, I, give, I give a webinar on how to review tax returns, and, and as many as most firms have as many, a lot of firms have as many of 80 and 90% of the returns that are handed into a reviewer are wrong. So the quality has to be improved at the uh, preparer level. That to me is a must. And um, if the preparers did their job right, then the reviewer, there's no need for the reviewer to check every item of input that the reviewer did, that, that the preparer did. Now, I got to tell you, if the reviewer, you, you, look at a tax office. You have one of the highest level tax people uh, does the review, and, and then you have uh, a bunch of lower level people preparing the return. So you might have four or five people preparing returns, and it goes to one reviewer. Physically, the reviewer can't really do an effective job rechecking all the work that everybody did. And, and if they do an effective job rechecking all that work, they're not reviewing the return, looking for tax planning opportunities, tax saving opportunities, and, and looking for red flags that might cause an audit. I, I right. quote reviewer fatigue. Um, yeah. Also, if a lot of firms cut out, if they, if they improve the quality of the preparer and, and really had a zero tolerance for errors, uh, I think a lot of overtime would be eliminated. Because a lot of the work that's done during tax season is done twice. Yeah. Somebody prepare it, the reviewer spends extra time finding errors, and then it goes back to the preparer to, to fix and it goes back to the reviewer. The other thing is ticking and tying is designed to find an error in the input. 
So I'll give you an example. If the preparer left off mortgage interest, the, the, the uh, reviewer would find it. That, that's what ticking in time does. Now, if that error is made and the return goes out to the client with that error, someone's going to find it. The client's probably going to find it. It's going to be very embarrassing and very uncomfortable for the accountant, but it's going to be corrected and there's no harm to the client. On the other hand, if the client has freelance income and could have had a SEP, which could have been a retirement plan that could have reduced some of his taxable income, the reviewer is not finding that or not looking at it for, for that because he's too bu- or she's too busy checking the input. So the input is checking the input is not going to make the client richer, but looking for the the planning opportunities will make the client richer. If it doesn't make them richer for, for the return that you're working on for the previous year, you could you could do the planning for the current year. Tell the client they can have a one person for a one k plan instead of a set. This way, they could put as much as 100% of some of their freelance income. So. It's, it's the way we look at the reviewer and the way we look at the review function. The reviewer is really quality control of a tax return. And, and when you have any business that's quality control, they sample the, uh, the work. They don't recheck all the work that everybody does. So I think the emphasis is totally wrong. And I have a book on this, and that's why the book has been a bestseller by far. And I've been doing a series of webinars on it, and, and they all seem to be sold out. Uh, oh, that's great. People are not reviewing returns properly. Yeah, I remember I came up, I started my career on the audit side and also did reviews. And I always often thought that a review in terms of financial statement was probably you catch more doing review than you do an audit because you're so busy, you're in the weeds when you're doing an audit. Um, now obviously you have reviewers that are supposed to keep you you know, do that that big picture review, but um, in some ways, I always thought a review engagement was would probably have a better chance at catching something big than an audit would. You mean a review uh, engagement for a financial statement? Right, exactly. Okay, well, okay. Uh, for, that, for that same that same concept, you know, if you're if you're ticking and tying, it's not there's not a whole lot of value in that. <laughs> There's no value in picking a tie other than to catch a, a careless error that was made by somebody, but these errors get corrected and there's no harm to the client. But an error of omission that could have been done, I'll give you another example. A client gives large amounts of, of money to charity and they have large capital gains. Well, this has nothing to do with last year's tax return, but a, a reviewer should make a note for a planning opportunity that maybe that client, instead of selling the stock for the current year, could donate it to the charity and get a tax deduction, the same tax deduction, but not have to recognize the income. We're not having our reviewers find those things. And to me, we're being paid, a professional is being paid to do the planning, not to make sure the input's 100% right. It should be right, but we have to make it right at the lowest level in the firm, not at the highest level where the reviewer finds the error. And then in a lot of firms, the reviewer corrects the error, which is totally, totally stupid. Now, there's a lot of people that uh, listen to me and they think I'm crazy. Because 30 years ago, they, they were doing it a certain way and, and it shouldn't change. 
And, and these are the people that complain every year about the time crunch, about the quality, about running out of time, about the overtime, and not having enough uh, input from everybody. It has to do with the training. Right. Um, now let's talk about, you know, this, this ties directly into a lot of the things that we preach is, is about pricing. Um, you suggest that bills are sent with return. Um, so how, how do people, if people are um, really into reviewing time records, how, do they, how can they do the bill um, with the return? That's, okay. You know, I think that people lose track of something. We're, we're in a business. We're, we're not, this is not a hobby. And we don't, we're not in a business where we physically sell time. We, we may think we sell time, but the client buys a product. They buy an end product. Most tax returns uh, have some sort of fixed fee to it, even if you're on a time basis. If you're, if, if you, even if you do it on a time basis, somehow the, the fee's about the same every year. If there's no major changes to the return, the, the accountant should know what the fee was last year and what they could charge this year. If there's extras on the return, uh, then the accountant should look at the extras, see what caused extra time, and then assign a value to it and bill it that way. And, and they should put the bill with the return. The longer it takes for the bill to um, be sent to the client, the, the, the longer you're going to get paid and the less likelihood you're going to get paid 100% of what you bill. Now, I say return should be, the bill should be sent with the return. They should be sent no later than with the return. I know a lot of accountants now, they, they tell the client when they drop off the work how much it's going to be, and they get paid yeah. at that time. Yeah. Or they get credit card authorization, and then they charge it when the return is finished. Uh, We've got to get paid, and we gotta, yeah. we got to charge the right fee. And, and what we think, you know, I'll give an example. We could do an NO, an net operating loss deduction on the return, and we could get the client a substantial amount of money, a substantial refund, and it could take literally 40 minutes. So if your billing rate's uh, $300 and it takes 40 minutes, uh, you're going to charge $200. Well, What's wrong with tell, if the client's getting a $30,000 refund, what's wrong with telling the client there's an extra charge of $2,000 or $1,500 for, for the refund claim? Yeah. And if, if we did the, the client's children, if we did two of the client's children's tax returns and went to college and had summer jobs and had, three, and had W-2s from three different states, and it literally cost us $400 to do that tax return, we're not going to bill the client $400 for each return. We're going to bill a nominal amount. So if we're going to write down work that we perceive doesn't have a value to the client, why shouldn't we write up work that has a value to the client? Yeah, I'm totally in agreement with you. I'm a big proponent of value pricing, and um, I couldn't agree more. And I think clients... Uh, yeah, the, the simpler you can keep it for clients, they don't need to know how much time you have in the job. Um, most of them don't care. They care that they're getting a reliable product, like you said, and good service. And um, if you do those things, then you should be paid, and you should be paid in a timely fashion. 
Um, now, your your book gives ten reasons why a client should use. Uh, you know, you should have. A, uh, I guess you're saying you should have a list of ten questions, ten reasons why someone should use you for tax preparation. Could you share a few of those? Well, I, I I give ten reasons, and I have it's in one of my checklists. But a lot of us. Uh, fail to understand that we're in business, uh, clients must have somebody do their tax return, but it doesn't have to be us. So, so and, and on some level, to the client, the output, the physical product is the same. So, so what do we do to differentiate ourselves from, from other people? One, one of the biggest reasons that people should use us is that we're available we're going to be be there for them if they have a problem. Uh, another reason is that we really have a database of them, and we maintain a database of, of their situation. And if they have a new situation that arises, we can factor in their personal situation and make sure that any anything new that they do is going to they're going to maximize their, their tax benefits from from what they do. Uh, we're not here. You know, during tax season, we're here 24, actually, we're here really 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. We're, we're there for them. We will return their calls promptly, and we treat what they do, we treat the work we do for them with the care that they, they ascribe to it. When they get their tax return, it's the single most important thing in their, in, in their lives at that moment. They're not thinking, gee, I'm paying $300 extra. They're thinking, is this right? Is it going to get me in trouble? Did they pick up everything they should have? And we treat it with that same care. So, you know, it's, it's, we're, 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 in a sense, the continuity has a tremendous value for, for the client. Sure, and we, sure. we show it to them in terms of money, in terms of the, the value that they perceive. Um, so I'm going to start to kind of wrap up. I got one more question to uh, present to you. What is the number? What's the number one takeaway you want to leave us with today, Ned? That's a good question. Basically, we're in a business, and everybody that's listening to this podcast has a system for their practice. They all have a system. Some systems stink and some systems are tremendous, but everybody has a system. So you have to recognize you have a system and then you have to try to make it the, the system that you want and the system that's going to reflect the reality of the way you want to run your practice, run your office, and run tax season. So, I feel, so the number one takeaway is you work, recognize you have a system and then work on it to make it as good as you can make it. That sounds like an excellent plan, and um, we really appreciate you sharing all this with us. And I think people really might want to get some of this checklist, so we'll leave the email address. Um, so if, people if they email me, they said they heard the podcast, they email me, uh, I will send them, the, I'll send them the checklist. Give me a few days, but I'll send them the checklist as of now, and I'll put them on my list, and I'll send them the checklist when they come out in uh, January. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Ed. Thank you, Brian, and nice talking to you. 
Thank you for listening in on this podcast. If you would like to contact Ed, please email him at emenlowitz at witham.com. Ed also blogs at partners-network.com. If you would like to contact Poe Group Advisors about buying or selling a practice, you can email them at info at pogroupadvisors.com or by phone at 888-246-0974. Brandon's website and blog are located at pogroupadvisors.com.